In this episode, towards the end, we discuss suicide briefly. In case this is relevant for anyone listening or someone they know, the suicide lifeline in the United States is 988. In Canada, it is 1-833-456-4566. And in the United Kingdom, the suicide lifeline is 0800-689-5652. And uh, I have a link on the episode uh, notes for a a list of the lifeline per country in the world because it's a lot to go through but there you go this quick warning so is that just know that that it this will not come up until the very very end episode Welcome to Dark Habits and Omotovar Podcast. Uh, I'm Spencer, and with me is my uh, friend Joel. No, I, I actually, I vanished. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Never mind, Joel's not here. But instead of Joel, we have returning guest uh, uh, for the third appearance, uh, Jessica. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, this episode basically sprang up because when you were on the, f- the first time for drawing guitar, you mentioned you're, uh, you like Hitchcock, and like Hitchcock was like uh, a big uh, gateway for you or something, something along those lines. Yeah, no, it was. Especially, I think Vertigo is one of the first, m- I saw Vertigo as like a six-year-old. Um, which is too young to see that movie to really understand. I, I didn't understand it, but like the imagery grabbed me, and I kind of became obsessed with Hitchcock from from then on. Okay, yeah. So uh, that, that that made me realize, and also like uh, Hitchcock is a big influence on a motivar to various degrees depending on the movie. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and uh, I think Joel and I are kind of in the same boat. We both see Hitchcock as like yeah he's important but neither of us I think are really that crazy about him so (laughs) I don't don't know Joel what's your take on Hitchcock Mm, I I, like I haven't ever really just sat down and watched as many Hitchcock as I could or anything like that I've I've watched most of the more famous ones um Actually, I'm looking at the final years. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten out of the oh, 11, 12. Oh, wait, uh, 13. <laughs> okay, so I've seen a bunch, but he he's prolific. Like, he has mm-hmm. a bunch yeah. of movies. Yeah. Like, I've never seen the movie Marnie because the poster seems to imply that uh, Sean Connery is ready for some boobage and the lady is not. So, that, that doesn't seem like my... Yeah. Uh, that's kind of it. That kind of is the movie, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the movie in a nutshell. It's I haven't seen it yet, but well, I don't, I know I do watch it once, but I kind of was like, at the time, like this. I don't like this very much. This is just kind of gross. I would say it is 
lower tier Hitchcock to me. So. Yeah, but uh, that that was, that's one that's a maybe episode. But then I'm like, I don't want to watch that movie again. Honestly, I, I don't want to watch that movie again. So let's not do it. <laughs> okay, I, I I know at least one or a few people who would be who would want to. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so like for me, Hitchcock was just like I've always heard the name. It's just in I've seen all the big ones, and it's just it's I'd only I'd only talk about any Hitchcock with people who I know that are really into his movies slash like have seen a lot of them so it was like uh, yeah so uh, when you mentioned that Jessica it was like this, the moment we were like okay well you're a perfect person for this <laughs> so um, what, so I, t- I told you you can pick wh- whichever whichever ones because uh, I, I don't have much of an opinion besides like he's important and so, like, what made you pick um, Lady Vanishes and um, Trouble with Harry? Uh, well, as far as Lady Vanishes goes, I wanted to do one of his British ones, which um, this is probably one of the more famous ones, but I f- kind of feel like his British era gets overshadowed by the American stuff. Um and this isn't the most famous of his British movies. That's probably the 39 Steps. Although maybe it's probably between this and that one. Um, but uh, I also kind of think this this alongside the 39 Steps is probably the height of his British era. Um, as far as just the level of craft where he was at in his career. Um, the level of control that he had. Um, uh, and so this one to me was very indicative of, of, of that you know, of, of British era Hitchcock. Um, Trouble with Harry is an oddball one. I kind of thought, especially compared to the more uh, popular Lady Vanishes, I thought it would be fun to do with because um, all his movies have comedy in them to some degree, most of them to some degree. Uh, but this one is goes way heavier on comedy than... Uh, uh, that it does the thriller aspects and I kind of thought it would be fun in that regard it also, I don't know, maybe the sense of humor kind of made me think more of Almodovar a bit, so Okay Yeah, I can see I would trouble with Harry So, uh, uh, J-Dog, had you seen Lay of Anches or um uh the Trouble, trouble with, Harry. with Harry? Yes <laughs> I had seen A Lady Vanishes a long time ago, and I made the mistake of assuming that I'd remember enough of it. And, you know, when I was watching The Trouble with Harry for the first time, I did I did remember it being not what I was expecting, because I didn't really know Hitchcock outside of, like, Psycho and Vertigo. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, this is just like a goofy movie that, okay, whatever. So I wish I had rewatched it, because I had... Mm-hmm. A lot of fun with the trouble with Harry, and I think I would have had a lot of fun with the Lady Vanishes this time. Lady Vanishes is very silly as well. Mm. All those British people, though, I don't know. I mean, it's mostly making fun of those British people, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh yeah, before we get into it, uh, trans rights or human rights? Uh, get involved. Learn what's happening. It's important. Uh. Yeah, okay, so, uh, yeah, so, Lady, so, I don't, I don't know, Jessica, do you want, which order do you want to go in? I'm going to start with Lady Vanishes. It came out earlier. 
So let's do that one. Alright, so Joel, what is the Lay of Anxious about? Well, it's about people on a train. You might say strangers on a train. <laughs> and uh, their train gets stuck uh, somewhere for some reason. And uh, the w young woman who's the, the main character um, is a famous actress whose name I'm drawing a blank on here. All of a sudden, uh, Margaret Lockwood. Margaret Lockwood, who is more famous for... Let's see. I've definitely seen her in something else, and now I'm okay. Let's let's just not pretend I'm trying to be more smart about this than I mm. am. That's that's an idea. Anyways, they they don't all really know each other. They are just people all riding the train together, but they all get delayed, so they all have to stay in a hotel. So um, something happens to Margaret Lockwood, and when she wakes up, there's this older woman uh, who is named uh mrs or miss Froy, rather miss Froy, and they they kind of bond because miss Froy uh helped her after getting a bump in the head and they have diner car scene together and every a bunch of people are all around them having this but um miss lockwood faints or something like that right she uh she takes a nap she takes a little nap a little nappy poosker and when she wakes up, nobody knows who the hell Miss Froy is. Or at least nobody seems to want to talk about who Miss Froy is. And she's insistent that this person exists. And people are basically like, I have no idea who you're talking about. Until somebody actually takes her serious. And it's like, well, if you say she existed, then I guess she existed. So the movie turns out to be... I mean, it's really silly. The actors are very silly about all the dialogue that's going on but so they figure out what happened with miss Froy. they kind of unfold this whole murder and uh a other crime thing going on and i remember very clearly that the movie <laughs> kind of ends in like a gunfight it's like wait what mm -hmm. i didn't see this movie going that direction so um you know it's it's a it's a silly crime movie i'd say yeah, with some pretty good suspense set pieces here and there that I, I mean, it's mostly silly, but the moments there, there's some there's some pretty pretty uh, pretty good, I don't know, stressful moments throughout too. Yeah, like for me, this was one that I've heard a title for years, and I had seen the TV adaptation uh, on Alfred Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, I think. There's some episode where like he adapted it, and I think maybe it's a different title, and I don't remember the episode at all. So like watching this was, uh, for like the real thing was pretty much like watching watching for a first time because I I don't remember the TV version at all. But uh, it took a while. Like here's the, here's the thing with Hitchcock in general. It takes a while for me to get into what the movie is like the first half hour 40 minutes uh of pretty much all almost all the ones i've seen it just i'm kind of like okay where where's this going and then once like the like, like the first like uh like the first 
like major thing that sort of like, like really kicks kick starts everything it that's when i get engaged but like it, it but i honestly was like just i i was just not into it for for our first chunk but then but once the the vanishing happened that's when like okay like it, it took a while to get there but now, now, I'm, now i'm invested but yeah, the first twenty. I mean, it takes what twenty or so minutes for them to actually get on the on the train that uh, that becomes the main, you know, the main location for the rest of the film. Um, he spends a lot of time setting up the characters. Uh, feels almost a little aimlessly at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to say that exactly, but it can. You can, like you said, you can kind of find yourself wondering, like, oh, where is this going? Especially if you haven't seen it before. Um, you know, it's the, it's the, 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 the two goofy British guys who are together kind of complaining. Actually, you would honestly think they were a bigger part of the movie based on how prominent they are in those first 20 minutes. Um, but yeah, once, uh, once they're on the train and, um, uh, Miss Freud disappears, you find yourself, uh, I don't know. I find it, I mean, I find it engaging before, but like that moment is very much like, like you said, it kicks in. You're, I, I don't know. I find it very engaging, especially from that point on. Uh, Joel, did you have a similar reaction? Well, like I said, I can't. I can't remember what it was. I think I was more. I don't know. I, I you know, I gave it three out of five, mm-hmm. which means that. I enjoyed it enough that I would watch it again, but I don't know. I think I was like honestly perplexed by some of the the twists of uh, who did what and who was where, because there is a lot of like people pretending to be other people and um, secrets being held by people that have nothing to do with what's going on with the plot. And, and such like that just like we don't want to reveal our secret because it'll be a scandal type situation and um, yeah I don't know Spencer okay well like watching it like watching watching the movie for real instead of the TV version it made me realize oh this is a like this is a classic for a reason and like, I see like the fingerprints of this and so many other things and so I don't want to say it was a lesser uh, like experience that, uh, you know to, to sit through but it, it kind of had that problem of when you see like the thing that influenced everything sometimes you're like you, you didn't you know exactly what what's going to happen you know like all you know like certain twists and turns mm-hmm. but uh, de- Oh no, you can go. I was gonna say, yeah, it's definitely influential on a, a lot of things. I um, this isn't the only one that I would say Wes Anderson was influenced by, but I see a lot of the fingerprints of like this film on um, Grand Budapest Hotel. Sure, yeah. Um, I think he's pulling in in that film. I think Anderson's pulling from a lot of kind of pre pre war. Um, British films. Uh, I see a lot of Carol Reed in that, but like. I was talking to somebody on Twitter about this, and I, um, you know, the the train sequences near the end of uh, 
of Grand Budapest felt very much, but even just like kind of the snappy, the snappy dialogue, the snappy patter. Um, I, I I saw a little bit of um, oh, what's the character Gustav M from uh, uh, Grand Budapest on um, mm-hmm. on Michael Redgrave's character in a way where he's kind of kind of this uh, snappy kind of dandy ish, uh, but not like, but also I don't know. I want to say dandy, but he's also like clearly kind of kind of kind. I don't. I wouldn't call the character rich by any means because neither of those characters are. And to me, there's like a richness that goes with the word dandy. But mm. um, yeah. And by the way, I love Michael Redgrave in this. I think he's. I think he's very funny. I think he's really charming. I really like. You know, people talk about chemistry between leads in a film. I love every interaction between um between Redgrave and Margaret Lockwood. I think they're very, very fun in this together. Yeah. I'll um, tell you what, I've never seen Michael Redgrave in anything else. I mean he's more like he's in the movie The Innocence and Dead of Night sounds familiar too. Let's see. That's an anthology movie. Dead of Night. Uh, architect Walter Craig, seeking the possibility of some work at a country farmhouse, soon finds himself once again struck, stuck in his reoccurring nightmare. Dreading the end of the dream that he knows is coming, he must first listen to all the assembled guests' own bizarre tales. Yep, sounds like it. I'm definitely more familiar with uh, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, his uh, his daughter. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah. And Googie Withers is also in this movie, and she's also in The Lady Vanishes. Yeah. Uh, when I first saw the name Michael Redgrave, I was like, he can't be related to to Vanessa. That so that's like, oh yeah, of course, never mind. It's <laughs> it's it's a movie industry. Like, uh, ne- ne- nepotism is rampant. Nepotism, exactly. It's so weird that like n- like I have a problem with nepotism when it comes to major businesses and the way that these things are treated as like kingdoms rather than businesses that should be evolving and um but when it comes to actors and actresses yeah it kind of sucks that you're much less likely to be an unknown that becomes a famous actor but because there's so many people that are you know already have a foot in the door because of who their parents are yeah, but like, like I would never be like okay. I wish Vanessa Redgrave never had a chance. <laughs> oh, oh no, no, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that. But like I think people like uh, Billy Lord, like on purpose, you don't use the famous name so like they, they don't get uh, you know, so so it's not obvious. Or Nick Nick Cage. <laughs> yeah, Nick Cage. Because Billy Lord is Carrie Fisher's daughter. Mm. Yeah, uh, she's in um. Uh, a book smart. She's like she has she has a, the breakup on book smart as like the crazy girl or something. Oh yeah. Okay, I know who you're talking about. And she's in the one of the Disney uh, Star Wars things in flashbacks as young Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so in uh, okay. And she's been other stuff too, but. Yeah, but like you wouldn't really know it unless you like you you did a quick search and like oh she's Carrie Fisher's daughter okay that's that that makes sense. Mm. But uh, yeah, so for like 
I was thinking of just um, the I, going back to like the whole influential aspect. I was thinking of with Lady Vanishes, just like I don't know if I don't think I don't think noir noir were a thing yet, but just like kind of in terms of uh, not noir. Where was I even going with this? <laughs> I what was it? Train. Oh, uh, never mind. Squ uh, uh, I forget the noir thing. Um, cause there's certain parts where like they're like, th cause they have to convince so many people, and they and they're against, and seemingly an overwhelming force, sort of kind of. I was thinking of a Snowpiercer. And mm. certain sh certain shots are just like when you see a train outside, and they're and they're stuck there the whole time, and. Uh, you know, as the mystery deepens, they are, are I don't know, it's like, in, in vague, very vague terms, I was thinking of Snowpiercer. I honestly love, like, as as a location, I think trains are probably one of my favorite locations you can, you can be on in a movie because there's something about, like, the cramped quarters that you can't really leave. I mean, that's especially the case in Snowpiercer, but even here... You know, these characters are, are, are trapped on this thing. It's moving, but the moving doesn't really actually affect them, except it gets them closer to where they're, where they're eventually going. But, you know, if you're trapped on that, on that train with a killer or with people who are doing some type of conspiracy against you, like in the case of this film, um, I don't know. There's something about there's like a claustrophobic sense. There's... Uh, Frankly, if more movies were on trains, I'd probably like it, even though, especially in America, no one really rides on trains much anymore. Um, I, I enjoy them, especially as like a as a thriller, as a thriller location. And, I mean, obviously, Hitchcock has used them other times. I think this the most, but, you know, tr Strangers on a Train, while the train itself is uh, uh, more brief in its, uh, in its use, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, or, you know, there's the, um, uh, like... Uh, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, which I would say is probably pretty influenced uh, by this uh, multiple versions of that movie. Yeah, and um, I was gonna go with. Uh, I I know Darjeeling Limited is more inspired by um, Indian cinema. Oh, what the, what's that guy's name? The big the big Indian director. Right. Yes, because a, a lot, uh, a lot of Ray is in that movie. But this, like the, the train location, and setting mm -hmm. that really makes me think of, um, Darjeeling Limited, because like it's you know centered on a train, a railway. Although, like plot wise, it's very different than <laughs> than than a Hitchcockian type of a, a plot. But like the sudden, uh. Like the, so, in, in terms of like Hitchcock's career, Jessica, wh where does this fit? Is was this like one of the first big ones for him? Was this like uh, a moderate uh, movie for him? Like, wh where does this land in like the the legacy? For well, this Hitchcock? was a, if I recall right, this was a pretty big hit for him, um, and it's still. I mean, I think it was particularly beloved in in England, but. Um, you could probably argue this is one of the movies that helped lead to his um, eventual move into Hollywood. Um, this and the 39 Steps, 
uh, kind of cemented his reputation as um, just an exciting filmmaker and someone who made things that people really wanted to go see. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, this I would say, and I think this period, the, the late 30s for him, was this moment, this film, and like I said, 39 Steps, and um, I think it came out a little bit before this, but uh, um, The Man Who Knew Too Much are movies where you kind of see all these different elements that he's been playing with as he is constructing what becomes the modern like m- modern thriller, the Hitchcockian thriller. Um, these elements are starting to kind of come together. The, the humor... Um, the kind of uh, uh, the things the audience sees that provide suspense that you're waiting for the characters to see uh, like one of the when I think of Hitchcock I think of moments like when uh, Michael Redgrave and uh, Margaret Lockwood are sitting you know, so at this point in the movie he kind of believes her but he's also pretty doubtful, and I think at, actually at this point she's even maybe convinced that maybe her head injury did cause her to imagine this this older woman. Um, and they're sitting in the dining car, and right next to them is uh, the the uh, window on which Miss um, Froy has had using like her finger, and I guess the the, the dust or the um, maybe the condensation on the window had drawn her name and so you're sitting there watching them talk and you're just waiting for them one of them to turn and see the name Freud written on there um uh which to me is like this key this this key type of uh suspense that uh that that Hitchcock uses visual suspense of what the audience knows but what the characters don't know um and I it's not the first time he had done this uh but it's one of my favorite moments, and I think it's one of the moment, one of his most successful moments before moving into American, into uh, into Hollywood films. Yeah, uh, um, this was a big, big jumping, big jumping stone for him. Okay, uh, I I purchased the last last week when we recorded about uh, Lon Chaney Senior, not Junior, because Junior is just okay, and Senior it <laughs> <laughs> was amazing. Uh, what's your opinion on Lon Chaney Jr.? On Lon Chaney Jr.? Yes. Is he in this movie? No, no. no. I, I was oh, just asking, in general. Like, in general. I don't know what my opinion on... I'm trying to think what I've seen Lon Chaney Jr. in. Um, I think my my opinion is mostly that he's, he's fine. Like, I don't really <laughs> have much of an opinion. Um... Uh, I, I mainly think of him like I know he had kind of a small part in like High Noon. I, I, I remember him from that. Um, I haven't seen as many of his um, like the monster movies he did. Okay. Because his dad, what was his, his dad was in, um, is his dad the one in uh, Phantom of the Opera? Yes. Oh, he that's an amazing movie. He's amazing in that movie. Yeah, his his dad, you know, the man of a thousand faces. Yeah. Anyway, so there's an episode on that that might be out by the time this comes out. But uh but we're talking about like this silent movies and how silent movies uh this because it's silent you need pure visual language. And I know Hitchcock started in silent era and there's mm-hmm. like so many a lot of the Hitchcockian touches to me 
this really scream like, oh, this is a guy who made silent movies. Like he mm-hmm. perfectly understands uh, how to just tell you everything you need to know just by like painting, like the way it opens with like the miniature, look like miniatures into a real set, and then it pans across the room, and then you just immediately know like, well. Something's going on. All these people agitated, and there's like no like. I think maybe there's music, but it's just pure visual storytelling in this, in, in where like where it needs to be, and uh, and it feels like even though it's sound is sound is in vogue, he stills like well, I still want to do like silent movie stuff. I think that is honestly why I think he's probably one of the best of of, of his era. I think. I, I've always kind of thought that directors who started in the sound era weren't as interesting as the ones who started, like the ones who started in the early, you know, early-ish sound era weren't as interesting as the ones who started in the silent era, um, you know, like Ford and Hitchcock, which both started in silent. Um, and Hitchcock, I don't know if you've ever seen any of his silent movies, but like The Lodger is as good as anything else he's ever done. Um, and you see a lot of those, uh, a lot of the skills that he had learned, like you said, carrying over into movies like this and uh trouble with harry is like full of this like silent movie um techniques and like it feels like a silent movie almost to me Uh, there's some good visual gags that definitely feel like that yeah Uh, um uh joel have you seen any of the hitchcock silent films i think i've seen um well, hold on. Let me look. I mean, I, yeah, I, I have seen some because I just looked at that list of ones that I'd seen. And uh, let me go by date real quick. Okay, so I've seen Murder with a capital M. Or with, a, with an exclamation mark, rather. When convicted murderer, one juror select to serve the murder trial jury believes the accused and aspiring actress is innocent. Yeah, I, I can't remember, remember about it. Well, that's an early really sound one. Oh, that's a sound one? Never mind. Yeah. I remember Thunderbird said, I would hate that one specifically. <laughs> and I think he's saying it's, there's probably some racist shit in that one. <laughs> oh, yes, there is. That's that's okay. why I watched it, because I was like, what? Everybody's... Okay. No, I, I guess The Lodger, that one's silent, right? Uh, yeah, The Lodger is silent, um, okay, so, and probably his best of his silent ones. That's um, the I only th- one I've seen. And yeah, it uh, was a movie. Yeah. Uh, oh, Jessica, have you seen Murder? Is it is it super racist? I actually haven't seen that one. Um, that one, That's one that... I don't know if there's been a good restoration of that one. Um, a lot of his British ones, um, at least for a long time... The best way, to, the only way that I could ever find to see them mm-hmm. was in these terrible like Hitchcock twenty packs where mm-hmm. they were there was no no restoration, terrible transfers, um, and so I haven't I haven't seen that one. There's a chunk of the British ones that I haven't seen at all, um, and that's one of them. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, there is definitely some, you know, we've talked about some of his other ones. Um, mm-hmm. I think one we've even talked about doing on the show, um, which oh. is. A great movie outside of a pretty racist uh, part in the finale. <laughs> oh, no, oh, we will cover that one. Like, I really do want to see is how Hitchcock clunkily handles <laughs> weird shit like that. 
but uh we're we're covering trading places what's going on uh you know i love that movie except for that you know yeah yep. we, we all know that part that mm-hmm. in trading places where it's, we watch it as an adult and go oh this was okay in the 80s <laughs> no but yeah but oh yeah anyway but uh uh, what the lady vanishes like so, like some stuff that I was generally surprised that threw me off in a good way was how um I don't know how to say it without like sounding it was not come off, come off clunky but like it leans into the the uh, main character being a woman in terms of she notices like the nun is wearing high heels and that's something that that uh I don't think Michael Rudgrave's character would even think twice about because he's. Oh, I was just gonna say the nun's accomplice. Uh, you know the, the 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 mastermind behind this. Even he doesn't seem to actually be aware of it until it's brought to his attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why would you do that? He's sitting with her this whole time. Sorry to cut you off. I just think yeah, you're right. I mean the men don't notice that in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, I didn't notice that until that part. I was like. Oh, yeah, she is a nun wearing high heels. That is weird. I did because I liked the heels. <laughs> Nuns wearing high heels, Almodovar, boom. I'm sure there there has to be at least one. What? And what, one with nun in, like, and heels. Oh, well, I mean, don't you uh, think there was probably one in the namesake of the podcast? Dark Habits? Yeah. Um, Possibly. I don't remember specifically. But I feel like, but I feel like but... he would have made a bigger deal about, like, them... Like being fashionable, if that was gonna, never mind. Uh, I mean, let's move on. But like other stuff, like when uh, Lockwood is describing, is describing, like what the woman's wearing and how like that, and like in a way like I, that like you know to uh, tr- uh, a more traditional man wouldn't even think to even pay attention to like the detail of the clothes. They just oh, feel she's like very specific. Hmm? I was just saying she's very specific. Yeah, and it's like this small, small touch of like that where it's like, yeah, yes, it's kind of leaning to like you know like, I guess some some people would say like, uh, stereotypical femininity, but it's still is cool to be like, well, that actually is relevant to the plot and helps move the story along. And I mean, it's something that I would say. If clothes are something that you think about, if uh, you're dressing a certain way, something you're going to notice it in other people. So yeah, I I, I I like that aspect of it a lot. Yeah, and like, I don't know, I don't know. Like, there's a the Howard Hawks woman, like it, and there's like the Hitchcock blonde. But is there like a Hitchcockian, like, uh, woman type uh, archetype? Because she, she, even though she like is kind of damsel in the stress a little bit in the beginning. She still is very capable, and I just wonder, like, are there other, like, um, like women leads in, like, uh, Hitchcock movies that follow a similar, uh, uh, like, pattern? I'd say in the British films, yeah, there's, um, I'm trying to remember if in, um, the, um, the 39 Steps, because, uh, in his American career, you get this kind of icy, the icy blonde that uh, becomes a big archetype in his films. 
um, the, the, the women in his, I think, earlier black and white stuff, there's um, kind of like a hard screwball quality to them where, uh, you know, they can keep up with the men. This one especially. But, like, they can keep up with the men and um, they're not pushovers. Um, I kind of feel like this character sort of gets replaced by the like stereotypical Hitchcock blonde as as his filmography goes, especially with the big ones. But mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. even though in um, what is that one? Uh, I mean, she's a blonde, but uh, Grace Kelly in in Rear Window, um, you know, she's a strong, resourceful character herself. You know. Mm-hmm. Most most of the most dangerous things that in the movie are things that situations she puts herself in because she's trying to you know she's trying to help uncover this mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean I think there is kind of a, a strength to at least some of his women characters. My boyfriend won't uh, have relations with me, so I'm going to try to help him solve this stupid murder he thinks he found. Yep. <laughs> the movie. Because yeah. uh, I know like. Uh, I mean, like, everyone knows it if you're listening to this, but, like, you know, Hitchcock was uh, not great to actors, you know. he I think he's the one that said actors are, like, cattle to him. Yeah, I think that, that that quote is sometimes made to sound a little harsher than he meant it, but, yeah, I mean, that's kind of his idea of actors. He didn't really like the method stuff. He wanted them to stand on their mark, do exactly what he told them to do, and then move on. Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, the one Gregory Peck apparently on that one like Gregory Peck was more method and he was like just stay in lines I don't give a shit <laughs> to- <laughs> <laughs> it's all about what the director is telling you what to do every director's got a different way yeah and he's he was very much he saw the actors as like set pieces and- yeah, exactly they they you know they need to be where they are they they serve the greater image I mean, like, the Coen brothers are kind of like that, because, like, they're famously, um, at least, like, the stuff I've come across is, like, what you, the dialogue you hear in a movie is what was written, and they're, like, say it in this specific kind of way, in this tone, stretch out these certain words, and, like, that's how you, that's how you work with the Coen brothers, like, they just tell you precisely what they want. The the one I always think of is Peter, um... Is it Sarsgaard? No. Uh, Peter Stormare? Stormare. Thank you. Yeah. Peter Stormare. Um, in Fargo, read the script and it says, uh, um, which way Which way to Pancake House or something like that? And he's like, well, that doesn't make sense. So, so when he said the line, he said, which way to the Pancake House? And they stopped and he's like, yeah, you inserted a word in there. <laughs> you need to say it like which way to Pancake House. It's like, oh, okay. I personally always prefer the very specific directors like that, the ones who kind of see their performers as just kind of... I mean, I'm a huge De Palma fan. He's my personal favorite filmmaker. Mm. Um, And... I Yeah, I I prefer this more controlled, this more... To... I mean, there's other... You know, I like... I like... I mean, I know he's problematic but i like the films of woody allen and he is very much like do whatever you want um 
But yeah, there's something to me about the directors like Hitchcock or De Palma or the Coens who have a very specific vision, and the actors shouldn't get in the way of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ajuzo Tommy was another one because like his his widow talked about on, on Tom Popo's like he's very specific. He'd be like, say a line like this. And, and Tom Popo, he specifically would say, like, this is a reference to this one Western. You have to say it like, like this person said in this one Hollywood Western. Mm-hmm. And, uh, You're doing the like, egg singer wrong. Start over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, the funny thing is with that is he and his wife had to practice that and show everyone, like, well, this is how you do the egg, how you do the egg thing. <laughs> I'm never watching that movie. No, never. Never again. Because <laughs> the, the egg make out? No, it's more of the turtle thing, but uh, no, okay. I, I definitely would watch that movie again. I'm just making a joke. It's just, <laughs> I did not know the detail you just told me, and uh, my my hair just stood on end, that's all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I showed it to my fiance, and she was like, this is disgusting, turn, turn this off, <laughs> the, the, egg, the egg scene. You think uh, Tampopo is a good first date movie? <laughs> For the right, uh, it should be, I'll say that. <laughs> okay. This Anyways. is very off topic, but uh, I made the mistake. I wasn't even thinking about it, but like I think two nights before I got married, mm-hmm. uh, my my partner and I I, I showed her um, Gone Girl, which is not a good movie to watch like, <laughs> right before you're about to get married. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is a very Hitchcockian movie itself. That's probably my favorite Fincher. Oh yeah. Hmm. Fincher, uh, I think we've only seen Fight Club. Yeah, that's, I'm yeah, not actually a big fan of his, but I do like I, I like I like Gone Girl a lot. Yeah, he's one of the guys like I, mean, I say I saw seven when I was in high school. But I don't remember anything besides the box, and that's really the only thing I remember from mm-hmm. from seven. But uh, yeah, he's one of those guys like one of these days I'll 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 fill in the blank spot. I just don't know when that'll be. <laughs> Do you want to see that new one? Oh, the Netflix one? Oh, is it a Netflix movie? I the, believe it the is. The Killer? Because I know yes. it's playing at some theaters around here. Oh, it's yeah. probably not... Okay. They're trying I was to, waiting uh, for it to show up at my theater, but it probably won't get a wider release then, so I should probably head over to into Manhattan and see that. Yep. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, anyway, like... So, like... Uh, so it's not, it sounds like I wasn't super into Lady Vanishes. I did really enjoy it, but it's also one of the things where a part of me feels like I'm not like an expert in classic Hollywood stuff, in, in, well, like in classic film of this time period type stuff. And so a part of me just feels like everything has been discussed. Slash, um, like I, I haven't seen enough Hitchcock to be like to point out this is the evolutionary point for him, blah, 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 type type thing. But I did really enjoy it. I, I like the chemistry between Redgrave and Lockwood. And it's like the the, like in the the part that like really charmed me, that turned me, that really made me like the movie was when they're in the magician, the place where the magician had all his props. Mm-hmm. And they're just like kind of being goofy. And he's putting on, and, Michael, and Redgrave is putting on like the hats. And, I, and he does a, and they do a whole like, Sherlock Holmes bit. It's like this is like this is completely unnecessary, but I love that this is here. They're so cute together. It it's I, I, I don't know. It's really important in a way of like actually liking these characters. 
I, they're so charming in that scene. Yeah, and uh, like Lockwood is gorgeous. Red Redgrave is, uh, I won't say super handsome, but like he definitely is like lean man material. But mm-hmm. he's just so magnetic, and it's like because early when you see him, my cut reaction is like, I hope he gets, I hope he dies or disappears. <laughs> he's so annoying. Yeah. But at <laughs> I, think I remember like, that. <laughs> but like by the time you get to him on the train, it's like, oh, he's actually charming. Mm-hmm. Isn't isn't uh I, it's Iris, right? As uh, the yes. characters, isn't she like engaged and then they fall in love during this murder yeah. mystery? She yeah. She's introduced by uh, she's like, uh, she's drunk or something. I I I don't remember. I was kind of was t- tired when I was taking notes. But she's like saying like, well, there's nothing left but marriage, and then it's this very like, I don't know if it's on purpose a comment on like the role of women because it's Hitchcock. I don't think he thought about things like that. Yeah, but a it, lot of people did. Yeah. That's true. But especially his Hitchcock wife was involved in the making of the movie, though. Um, I'm yeah. sure. I mean, she uh, was co-writer on the screenplay, so who knows? It could have come from from her. That yep. is true. But it's just, it's just interesting, like, there are little, uh, a few little things about, like, you know, like, uh, basically she's saying, like, well, I've done everything, I guess the only thing left I knew is marriage, and it feels like a subtle comment, and maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, his, maybe Mrs. Hitchcock was, I think her name was Alma? Yeah, and I want to say she's not listed as an official screenwriter on this one, but she was involved in, 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 in the working on this one. Yeah, maybe she snuck in some like pseudo feminist stuff to the, the, but just enough so that like no one would notice. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go down like a this is all all about Hitchcock kind of thing. And I mean, this is a Hitchcock episode. I guess it's appropriate to do so. But <laughs> like a lot of the things, I I I feel like there are these like centric or uh, script centric things on a woman's experience like just thinking about the beginning of psycho before she drives off to the motel and everything and even when she does get to the motel before the the big scene everybody knows um she's a woman who decides to steal money and having an affair with somebody like this watching her actions like what it's like to be her kind of thing it's you know she's not scared she's not running away she's like headstrong on like okay i've made this decision and this is what's going to happen and there's a couple of situations where i think it's like the women are not just like uh they're not just set pieces to make the man look better for the most part in these things yeah but you know i think about someone like mizoguchi who is labeled a feminist filmmaker but his personal life stuff you find out <laughs> he didn't treat women all that great he there just yeah he just made a movie really good movies about women suffering and like how society's fucked up but he himself was a part of the problem and and hitchcock himself you know doesn't always have a great reputation with i mean not, not always often doesn't have a great reputation with women and maybe how he he saw them but i i, I do think he i mean I feel like many of the Hitchcock women feel like real people, feel like real women, um, even if there is um, an idealized, particularly visual 
um, look at them from from his films. I I, I do think there is. They're they're more than just like attractive. They're uh, there there's I don't know. There's a character there. Yeah, and also like you know, like you said about his wife Alma. Maybe she's like that was her her input. Like, like making them more full full fully rounded character, fully rounded you know people. It, it's possible. Yeah, you know, I don't. I know that she was heavily involved. She he talks about her a bit in. Um, I don't know if you ever read it. Uh, it was a great book. It's um, uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, which was Truff- mm-hmm. it's basically an interval, in, uh, a, a book length interview between Truffaut and Hitchcock, and I, I believe they talk a bit about um, Alma's uh, contribution, um, at least on a technical level. Hmm. Yeah, uh, great, off. great, great, great book. Uh, just as even if you don't like mm-hmm. Hitchcock, just listening to a filmmaker, you know, he's not going into you know the subconscious elements of the film mm-hmm. but just they're just talking shop and they're really uh it's just kind of neat hearing listening reading someone talk about uh their films in kind of this technical way and how they figured out certain problems i think it's i would say it's probably one of the greatest film books ever made which i'm not i'm not the first person to ever say that but it's it's fantastic yeah uh, on a pink smoke episode funderberg told a story about um Truffaut, I forgot what the episode was on. It's one that came out, I think, this year, this episode, that um, uh, Truffaut was talking to some other French film person, and they're talking about like movies that came out the year this year, and it was 1979, I think, was uh, what, what happened. And they're like, well, Kramer vs. Kramer is a really good movie. And then like Truffaut said, well, you know what the best movie uh, this year is, right? And then at the same time, he and another person said, Alien. <laughs> <laughs> he he loves genre films. Uh, he Truffaut really. Did. There's um actually, you know, we're talking about Hitchcock and his how he was with women. Um, he was also very clueless about women as well. There's this great story from the Hitchcock Truffaut book. Um, you may sometimes people bring it up on Twitter, so you may have seen it before from that. Um, but um, I don't remember what film it was. Uh, it was one of his earlier films, but he was working on this movie, and um, there was a scene where the actress had to get in the water, and she's like, oh, I, "I can't, I can't do that today." And the reason she couldn't do that was because she had recently had her period, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he had no idea what that was. <laughs> he didn't know what it was, and so some of the older men working on the set. This is again when he was relatively young, um, but I mean, he's still in his like I think he was in his twenties. Um, he had to be pulled aside and they had to explain to him like what a period is and uh, he was furious that like his his um, his movie would get uh, um, delayed a bit because of because of this um, he, he was kind of a bozo in some ways <laughs> yeah I mean uh, I'll, I'll keep this short but like uh, I'm a home health aide, and I take one of my people to a, a church, uh, in Bible study stuff sometimes. And some of the older men are like very like you know, women stuff about like periods, and it's <laughs> like you're you're sixty years old and you can't say menstruation. <laughs> women stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very sad, but also like I I. I kind of can't grow up in that 
world, like very conservative Catholic world. It's like, I get it. I, I, oh yeah, I, so I, did I, know I. These people. <laughs> yeah, they're they're all like. I mean, I know plenty of people who probably still talk like that. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 fucking stupid. That's beyond. It's just so fucking stupid. I don't get it. Just be <laughs> be an adult. <laughs> it's okay to to say menstruation and whatever. Uh, anyway, so um, yeah, lay of ashes. Uh, I am um, all good on that. I want to get to trouble with Harry. So Jay Diesel, what is trouble with Harry? I don't know. I haven't talked to Harry in a long time. I think he's okay. Uh, I hope so. I mean, his dad went kind of crazy. No. Became a, a, a Green Goblin. That's true. That's true. Jesus. <laughs> what about Pete? No, just, just kidding. Uh, so, yes, The Trouble with Harry is a movie about a dead body. And the dead body's name is Harry. Or was Harry. Depends on what you think about that. And uh, it's a very, very small town where this dead body is located by the the weirdest child I've ever seen. <laughs> that kid is... I like that kid. What? But you like a child actor? I didn't say I liked him as an actor. I said I oh. like the kid. Okay. <laughs> he's fine. I mean, he's doing fine. He's doing an excellent job portraying the weird kid that he's supposed to be. He seems like not on his own plane, his own planet, which is very good. Um, but we've got a town. It's It's just like a town of probably more than a handful maybe 15 people I, I doubt we get to see the entire town in this thing but just a bunch of people who can't really be bothered with the fact that there's a dead body around and the so hold on let me bring up the information on this movie real quick this hairy guy yeah so John Forsyth plays this man who everyone calls a captain, Captain Marlowe. And he has gone rabbit hunting, and the second he sees that dead body, he assumes, oh, crap, I thought you, I saw a rabbit. You mean Edmund Gwynn? <laughs> no, oh, oh, no, I'm talking to Edmund Gwynn. I am so sorry. Yes. John Forsyth is the uh The, the handsome guy. Yeah. Yeah, the painter. The, the handsome guy, quotation marks. <laughs> And Sherman McLean plays an old lady. No, no, that's Mildred Natwick. I'm taking Miss Gravely, Mrs. Wiggs, Annie Rogers. So Miss Gravely is the one that the 42-year-old ancient woman, right? <laughs> Jeez, Louise. I'm 42, by the way. Put me in the home. <laughs> and marry this 60-year-old man. Uh, anyway, so everyone is kind of like, <laughs> kind of stumbles upon this dead body and they're either just walk away or they pay no attention um, because uh, Captain Wiles thinks he's the murderer he, he's sticking around because he wants to at least drag it off to some place but the, the rest of the town shows up <laughs> one by one it's it's actually very silly and this this part reminded me so much of Almodovar, where it's like this is this is a dead body we're talking about here, or it's like I I don't know. You just stole a million dollars, and everybody's just incredibly casual about it, just having conversations like, hmm, well, perhaps we should involve the police. No, no, that's 
Oh, don't worry, it was an accident. Uh, yes, but I don't, you know, dates get planned and uh, art gets made and <laughs> uh, young widows who just recently became widows. <clears throat> uh, Shirley McLean, you know, get romanced. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like a... It's almost like a single room, like farce. Of course, they they have multiple locations, but everybody's is a little bit dishonest with everybody else. And when they all admit it, it all seems so silly. Even though, like I said, we're talking about dead body. There's even a part where the dead body gets hauled to somebody's house, and the clothes are all removed so they can clean it up because the body has been buried. Unburied, buried, unburied, buried, and unburied. <laughs> so it's filthy. They want to put it back exactly how they found it originally. So when the state police find it, nobody thinks like, "What the hell happened to this guy?" Um, yeah, I think that pretty much sums up the plot. Alfred Hitchcock apparently was in there. Passerby. Yeah, he usually. I mean, he often had a cameo to this movie. I was trying to think if there's a cameo in Lady Vanishes. I'm sure there was. I just missed it. I did not see his name in the credits for that one, but uh, I don't remember seeing him. Like, I know he does that, you know, famously in um, North by Northwest. He's the guy who can't get on the bus. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember him in The Trouble with Harry. Did you, did he, did you guys spot him? I, you oh. know, he's always... He's not in all his movies. There's a you know there used to be a trivia, a, a fake trivia thing that he used, that he was in all his films. Yeah. Um, but he has a cameo in most, and I usually miss it. Frankly, like it usually goes right past me because I'm not I'm not paying attention to that part of it. Um, mm-hmm. I would I am sure he was in this because, and I'm sure I'm pretty sure he was in uh, the Lady Vanishes. But mm-hmm. it's just uh, you know it's always like half a second when you see him. Yeah. And let's see, you know, the part where he looks at the camera and goes, hello, I'm the director, and then he walks off screen. <laughs> it's, it's uh, Very awkward it, in Vertigo. Yeah, it's just like how Amartavar has his brother cameo in a lot of his movies. Oh, yeah. But but his brother it usually gets a line or two, and you can tell it's like, it's a guy that looks like uh, Amartavar, but he's bald. Yeah. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you know it's him. And the more Almodovar movies that we've seen, I, I do feel like there's usually a character that kind of like represents him, mm-hmm. whether it's just a side character like the the cab driver in uh, <laughs> Women on the Verge. I feel like, <laughs> I and then thought about like that. Mm, I think of some others as it comes up, but yeah. Okay. What do you guys think of the Trouble Harry? Like, what's your opinion? I really like this a lot. It's me too. It's um. I got I I got some got some shit from a friend, jokingly in a loving way from uh, Bo North. Almost said Bo North's real name on a recording. Ooh. Uh, I think she's Joel, Bruce Wayne. Yeah, well, Joel, I think you know. Yeah, Bo of course I do. Name. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I and I was like, oh yeah, Rope is my favorite Hitchcock, and they were like, how can you say Rope is your favorite Hitchcock? It, it should be it, it has to be vertigo <laughs> oh my gosh 
and uh, I mean they're right, but no, I'm joking. Yeah, but uh, no, no, I I get why Vertigo is like beloved, but for me, Rope is like the one. But uh, yeah, Rope anyways, is great. Like, I, I just saw that one again on like 35 millimeter, just I think three months ago. It's oh, it's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, like uh, I watched it again, uh, maybe within the last year or so, and really got, we will not do a Rope episode because uh, I feel like I, that one no no one picked it slash. That's when I'm like, it's sure. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I was horror queers an amazing episode on it already. It's like they already did a great episode. On it. I, I don't want I don't want to poison a well. <laughs> they they, they kind of covered everything that like is deeply fascinating about it. <laughs> mm. Anyway, like watching it a second time for me like later was like, oh holy shit! There's a lot of uh, not so subtle gay stuff. And a lot of references to jerking off that I just did not pick up on the first time. Well, speak, speaking of that, in, in The Trouble with Harry, when they're talking about how preserved what her name was, I was actually like, this is kind of gross, guys. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like doing hand gestures, and it's like, uh, yeah, I know what you mean, okay? But anyway, yeah. So Troubled Harry, like I would put this up there, like for me with Rope, it's like it's definitely up there. Like, it might be my second favorite Hitchcock, if being honest, because it's like the weird outlier. It's real. I, I like goofy stuff. Like this one is, it feels like almost a parody of his movies, where mm-hmm. it's like, but what if the mystery kind of doesn't matter, and it's just a bunch of goofy hijinks, and then they kind of go like, oh yeah, we have we have a mystery or some shit to solve, but. Let's be silly for a little bit first. <laughs> I kind of feel like the plot of this movie easily could have been a um, like a you know some you know guy stumbles on a body very easily could have turned into like the wrong man accused type of uh, Hitchcock plot that Hitchcock has did a bunch. Um, and I think, you know, first time I watched this, I remember thinking like, oh, okay, someone's going to get falsely accused for this. And no, now that happens, most people, I mean, they're a little bothered by the body. They're mainly bothered because they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's very silly. It's very, um, uh, it has, you know, it's silly, but it's very, it's very darkly funny. Um I mean, it's, it's a dead body, and they just are all kind of... I mean, I, I really like the setting of Vermont for this. Like, just small town Vermont. These, like, quirky Vermont weirdos who um, don't... I don't really know what any of these people do. Like, you know, John Forsyth is... Um, uh, uh, is, is a painter, but... Uh, doesn't really sell any of his paintings. Uh, the captain, um, Captain Wiles, I guess just hangs around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's a yeah. I, like you could, I guess, you can criticize this movie for not having like deep characters, but that's kind of not the point. No, yeah, this is, this is clearly just like you know a- after decades of being more. Even though, like you said, there's like silly and goofy humor in his movies, but like this is just him. Like, I want to, I want to do something just silly, and uh, for me, it totally works. Like, yeah, I, I, 
I kind of wish there was... Or is there another, like, really goofy, silly, um, like, taking a piss out of himself uh, one he did? Not to this degree. I mean, I think um, North by Northwest is really silly a lot of the time, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, that is a comedy more than it is a thriller. It's just really funny. But the thriller still manages to kind of... The thriller man, even his silly movies, the thriller elements are usually the backbone that kind of hold it all together as mm. as the plot moves forward. Um, this he like took out the thriller part pretty much entirely, um, um, which I I really, you know, I'm gonna feel stupid if there's one that comes up later that I forgot about, but I I don't really think I've ever seen him do it like this, at least not with. His more well-known movies. There may be um, like one of the obscure British ones I haven't seen, uh, um, but uh, this one is I I feel very different from the type of thing. It's still very clearly him though. Like I wouldn't confuse this for another filmmaker. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But like, oh, one thing I want to get out immediately before I forget. Uh, like for me, like just the vibrant color palette to me screams like I bet Wes Anderson likes this movie mm. and uh, has Ozu editing and I, when I say that I mean um, uh, when you do like the how in Ozu movies there's like a shot of a room that's empty another room that's empty then you see someone walk down a the hallway then cut to a, a room and mm. the person walks into the hallway and god damn it and I'll meet for a little bit it's about that time. Oh, it's sirens going off. Um, he has a fire station that he lives next to, and oh, goes off. Yeah, pretty often. Should we? I guess we should continue though, right? Without him for a moment. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, talking about the color palette, I love. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Vermont in the fall, but it is beautiful and like. If to me this is like a perfect autumn movie, like I hadn't really thought about it till I rewatched it this time, and it is just you know because mm-hmm. I'm in I'm in I'm in New York, which is really beautiful in the autumn in, in autumn as well, and um, there's just something about that 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 look of it, the the vibrant colors of you know the the green that's still there, but then the gorgeous um, lush trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a really really pretty. Really I mean, pretty movie. Really part, pretty part of the country as well. Um, and so it movie, makes a, makes a yeah. good setting for it. Yeah, movie's emphasis on color all over the place is is stands out so great. Like even, the, you know, the painter's work and things like that are just these blasts of color all over the place. And I, He's yeah. maybe my favorite color filmmaker. Um, I love I love the way he uses color, which is funny because mm. um, if you I know um, Orson Welles hated his use of color, but uh, Orson, I, I, Orson I Welles just, had a lot of opinions. He did have a lot of opinions, <laughs> um, but I I kind of his movies are so vibrant the color in them, especially his stuff from the fifties. Um, there's just I don't know it's very his use of color is very explosive. I I, I really really enjoy it. Yeah. Uh. Okay, so the siren's over finally. Uh, so like with Ozu editing, like it's. Like, do do you guys understand what, what I mean? Why like with Ozu editing? Yeah, I think so. And like, and I just felt like a lot, a lot of the editing, the 
going between scenes was like the the Ozu thing of you get various shots and it gets like the way he used that to emphasize to show like well we're going to a different part of the town You're like and Ozu stuff is like we're going to a different part of uh, of, of the city but I'm going to show you like screenshots of different parts of the city as we travel there and like this felt like it's doing a similar thing okay yeah I think I see that uh, I don't. There has to be a more technical word for it, but I've never taken a film class, so I, I haven't. Really I can't think of what it is. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention for a moment. What were you saying? You know how in Ozu movies, like when he transfers between characters and locations, you get like basically a, a PowerPoint of like still shots of different parts of where they are to show uh, traveling. To like the other the, location, like these transition shots of yeah, yeah. uh huh. But 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 it's not like a transition, like a like a Star Wars wipe. It's or no Kur- no no. Uh, sorry, Kurosawa right. wipe because that's where he got it from. Right. Um, but like but you know it's just like if it's a very specific kind of way to to transition between scenes. Yes, I still think it's transitions, not specifically a wipe. Right, they're like traveling. Okay. towards wherever they're going and things like that as a, a middle point to show the fact that they didn't just like <laughs> they didn't teleport yeah. and also um, uh, well, Jessica I'm not sure if you have seen any uh, but uh, Ozu started in a silent era um, I've seen what is it um, like flunky work hard or whatever it's called I think that's a silent one isn't it um, he did a whole series like I, I flunked, but I yeah I graduated, but I graduated, but hmm. the whole like uh, but there a bunch of silent comedies he did in the oh I was thinking of a new Roos film. Sorry, I don't know if I've seen any. If I own his silent comedies on on like those Eclipse sets that Criterion put out. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. I'm sure I saw at least one of them, but I can't I can't think of it now. Can um, I borrow that? Can you borrow that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know uh, how I would get it to you. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, yeah but oh, uh, it's a thought that counts. Yeah, yeah but uh, yeah, but uh, like going off, we said like the most interesting filmmakers started in the silent era. I think that's part of why Ozu's. I find Ozu so interesting because you you watch his fifties era stuff, and you're like, well, clearly this like you can tell he's been around for decades and. Uh, and it just has a feeling of like this is a guy who started thirty years ago, back when there was no sound. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to trouble with Harry. So, uh, I didn't know this was um, Shirley MacLaine's first movie, and immediately, yeah. she's like the most charismatic thing on screen. She is so charming in this. She's so funny. Like her in this and in. Um few years later in the apartment mm. uh, she just like lights up the screen every time she's on it I mean the, like the the contrast between the characters she plays here and the other movie we watch for the show the children's hour is mm-hmm. it, it's like she she stands out so much as the same actress like she had this certain look for for all these movies that I can think of but the woman in here has this, you know, playful like attitude even about the more morbid things and she has a serious past that she hints at, but it's just this 
you know, gently. And then her role in the Children's Hour being so fucking powerful. Like, yeah. yeah. I Like, she came out of the box ready to go. She was like, hey, move over, my brother, Warren Beatty. I'm here now. <laughs> I mean, I'd argue she's a better performer between the two. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. I always forget I mean, that yes. they're siblings. Yeah. Are they full siblings or just like a, a Julia Roberts, uh, Michael, not Michael Roberts, um, uh, who, who, Eric? Her weird bro- Eric Roberts. Because they're, they're half siblings. I'm not Are, sure. I'm looking up her Wikipedia. It doesn't say anything about them being half siblings, so they must be they must be full siblings, unless mm. you know, unless I'm missing something. I'm just gonna ask ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so like, yeah, that's like the the casual goofiness of like, there's a body. What what are we gonna do about it? I guess bury it. Because <laughs> uh, like, um. Okay, uh, so that, so uh, besides um, Shelley, not Shelley, Shirley McLean, um, I just, even though he's barely in it, Royal Dano, who is also yeah. in Johnny Guitar, yeah, the episode yep. you were on, like I love Royal was, Dano. <laughs> yep. Yeah, seeing him pop up, like, oh yeah, this is gonna be good. <laughs> and even though he's playing like a, a, a dumb hick, and it, it, it could be kind of annoying, like. It's it's just enough, and it's like, oh yeah, this is this is the good stuff. I want I want more of this. <laughs> you know, his bumbling kind of uh, deputy sheriff, and like he wasn't a hundred percent bumbling. He just was behind everybody else in this case, because they were purposely keeping the information from him. And the the way that there's just like an odd kid. There's you know a painter that you know, has a secret or he, he didn't, he's the only one that didn't have a secret. He was just a jackass. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but the store owner is the mother of the deputy sheriff. There's this woman who's like 42, but like an old maid and captain who just wanders around. I just get this really strong twin peaks vibe. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even thought about that. I totally. Yeah. It, it, it lacks the, uh, the like the melodrama of Twin Peaks, but definitely is there. Yeah, it's like somehow they don't make the creepiness that comes along with you know the soap opera creepiness of Twin Peaks thing, because uh, frankly, it's just like, well, there's a dead body. Let's make a comedy around that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, what? So besides like the goofiness and whatever, Jessica, what do you like about Trouble with Harry? I mean, the goofiness really is a, a, a big part of it. Um, I was talking a little bit about like just kind of the look of it. I love, I love the explosive color. Um, I love how they're dealing with things that have high stakes, um, whether it's the body or um, whether it's the fact a millionaire wants to buy uh, John Forsythe's stupid paintings. Um, yeah, some and, good ones. I guess they're fine. I don't know if I'd... I'm not a millionaire, but... But what I love is, like, everything Everything is treated as just kind of this, like, trivial, oh, I guess this is happening now. We're going to deal with this now. Um, uh, there's this, like, tone that runs throughout it. Um, 
which I think is probably what makes it work so well is that, you know, these people in this quiet, quirky Vermont town, they don't take anything too seriously. Um, and even when they do, they're kind of bumbling goofballs about it. Um, what else do I like? I love, um, so this is kind of a, a major, um, a major film for Hitchcock in that this was his first, um, collaboration with Bernard Herrmann who did the score for it. Um, mm-hmm. and I love the music in this movie. And when I think of Hitchcock, I think of Bernard Herrmann's scores, um, cause you know, he did the music for, um, North by Northwest, Psycho, Vertigo, um, uh, I think I think he did To Catch a Thief. I'm not 100% sure on that. But, um, yeah, like, there, that that sound, when I hear Herman's music, uh, I think Hitchcock. And when I see a Hitchcock, you know, when I see Hitchcock imagery, I think Herman. Like, they're, despite only working together on relatively a handful of films in Hitchcock's huge career, I kind of link them as, you know, very important to each other. Um, and uh, uh, I love his, his, his very silly, playful playful music in this one. And uh, I'm sure some people listening are just want, just want to bring this up, but Jerry Mathers is the weird kid, and that, that's Beaver from Leave to Beaver. Oh, I don't think I even realized that. I haven't seen Leave to Beaver in a very, very long time. Uh, yeah, this is one of his first roles in anything, apparently. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's, but man, he, he plays a really good, just like weird kid. Mm-hmm. That opening, not the opening, but like the, the title shot where it's the mm-hmm. dead body and, um, him standing at the, um, so it's like it, it's shot from kind of a low angle where all you see is the dead body's uh, you know shoes sticking mm-hmm. up, and right at the you know head of, where his head should be, you see um, you see uh, the little boy with like his toy gun over him. I, I absolutely love like one of my favorite. There's a lot of good title title sequences and title shots and in, in uh, Hitchcock movies, but I, I love that one so much, and I think it kind of sets the tone for. For what the movie that follows is. Yep. Uh, and like the beginning, like sets you up for uh, this for like everything because it starts with I got my notes. It starts with um, uh, the the boy with the gun, and like he's like playing soldier or or whatever out there. Mm-hmm. And then you cut to an old man with a real gun. And it's like a very interesting, like this. I, I, I'm not even sure, like if it's even meant to be that deep or anything. It's just like a very interesting jump from child with a toy gun, then adult with a real gun, and then the like hijinks ensue. But like having a child part makes you, like, it's probably hinting at like, well, this is all kind of a joke. You don't take it too seriously. <laughs> I like how that kid knew how to drop as soon as he heard the gunshots. Like, he wasn't just like looking around. He's like, bam, drop on the floor. He was trained. He had his own laser guns to use. I mean, there in Vermont, that's a, that's like gun country up there. Okay, so everybody gets that. 
Yes. Like, remember when you're wandering the forest all by yourself, like we let, let, used to let children do. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> the hobo character. I was like, is this going to be a character? He's got an excellent singing voice. I don't, I don't know about the rest of it, but. The, yeah, some of the, um, the, the small characters in this, I love, um, the doctor, uh, mm-hmm. like when he's reading his book and, he trips over the body and you think he's going to notice it, but he just goes right back to the book and like circles around them. <laughs> I think it, like, I was like, okay, they don't have television back then. Like people would be that into books, just walking, <laughs> like figure out how can I read this book and, you know, get my walk in like, Oh, I'm just going to do it. And imagine doing that myself and just tripping on the sidewalk and <laughs> breaking like teeth or something. Like, ah, and like uh, there's like a lot of great lines, and um, yes, uh, I think one of the first things that uh, the the painter Mr. Barlow ha- has is um, I've been in a tortured mood lately. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I didn't remember who says it, but someone says, uh, "I can recognize human qualities in a woman." <laughs> <laughs> who says that? I think uh, oh, it was it was the captain. Right? Okay, yeah. we trying to seduce her. No, he's right. talking. He's talking to the artist about it. Oh, okay, I didn't. It's I didn't a, to con- oh. Yeah, right before the good. You know, talking about like oh, I can't remember the dialogue. That was gross to me. Okay, yeah, and uh, I kept thinking like the creaky door would amount to anything, and I was just so happy to be like oh that creaky door is just a creaky door it means nothing <laughs> it's just a silly like jump scare thing for <laughs> just because the captain's like superstitious he like mentions like something about something he saw in the morning it was like i knew somebody was going to be in trouble i just didn't know it was going to be me <laughs> and uh so i guess like the the actual is it is it uh, worth spoiling a movie that's sixty plus years old? Well, now people know you're about to do it, so I think you're fine. <laughs> yeah, like the even though like it's silly and goofy, there is like some seriousness when you learn like how Harry was murdered, because first you're led to believe it was uh, Shirley. I can't even say Shelley. Uh, well, you first sure. think it's Captain Wiles. Oh yeah, yeah, true. First thing it's him. And then through, because um, he says like he shot a, a, a beer can, something else, and then mm-hmm. a sign, a sign. But then you get the then uh, then you get then you start to think it's Shirley because she hates her husband, and then you get to reveal like oh no, like Harry tried to. I, I read it as he tried to assault Miss Gra- is it Gravy? Gravely? The accent yeah. kind of, I had trouble with. Mm. Yeah, he seems to think that Gravely, because well, he ha- has a head injury from Shirley McCain, McLean bopping him over the head with a milk bottle. And <laughs> so he, I believe, thinks Miss Gravely is Shirley yes. McLean at one point. So, And so, yeah, like kind of grabs her. I don't know if... It, if if we're supposed to read it as more violent than that, but she certainly th- thinks that you know he's trying something. 
Yeah, like that. Like that's like the one part where it's like it kind of got real, but then it kind of you know. I don't. I don't like. I don't get how. Uh, how um, how the movie like went from like kind of serious, uh, you know, stuff like that into like oh no, it's back to kind of being silly, and like it's just like a mastery of like how to tell how <laughs> how to make like a, a movie and understanding tone of you like how to de-escalate from that. Yeah, he always anytime he moves briefly away from the silly tone, he quickly like manages to bounce right back into it. It's these like. It's these little waves of of, of seriousness that, um, whereas I would say in his regular movies, the, the with the thriller as like like I said the backbone, um, the comedy is the like brief distraction that then moves you back into um, the kind of more serious gripping aspects of it, uh, where he inverts that here. Yeah, that's a. Uh... You know, but I don't know if directly influenced, but once again, makes me think of Wes Anderson. Very mm-hmm. good at having these incredibly serious moments and then going back to the, you know, mm-hmm. the light comedy. Even most of his movies have. Hmm. Yeah. Wes like, uh, Anderson, the guy that the more I watch movies, the more I'm like, I, I, I just, I just noticed, like, he probably has seen this. Oh, he certainly has, yeah. I, I think he's a pretty, I don't know, he's seen a lot of movies. It's interesting how much you can kind of pull from, all his movies seem to be pulling from just all these different, different, different influences. Yeah, and I appreciate he's not like an annoying film bro who loves talking about uh, that, that stuff all the time. Because like I find certain directors and people like, Edgar Wright, where it's like, I don't care about your movie taste. You're Listen, I, okay, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Tar- not, I'm not going to say him. Tarantino. <laughs> yes. It, it gets kind of grating. And uh, that's why I like David Lynch so much, because David Lynch is like, I don't want to talk about movies. I want to talk about art and philosophy instead. That's my guy. Yeah, they let their influences speak for themselves. They don't have to like, hey, did you see this? Did you see? Did you notice what I did there? Like... They're pulling from all these... I mean, I've heard Anderson talk about movies before, and he's, you know, very eloquent in that regard, but it's... Yeah, it's not... He doesn't come off as this movie nerd who's like, oh, did you see that? Did you see that? See what I did? Yeah. Uh, And, um... uh, I lost lost that train of thought there. But, uh... Yeah, so, like... Uh, well, Jessica, where does Trouble with Harry fit into like the 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 whole the legacy for Hitchcock? Because like Lay Vanishes was a breaking point for him. Was Trouble with Harry like a victory lap kind of fuck off experiment? Uh, like a little break. Uh, you know, I would probably say you're probably right about that. This is mid fifties. Um, he's probably at the 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 height of his popularity. Um, you know, he did Rear Window just, uh, Rear Window and To Catch a Thief, which were both big hits for him just before this. Um, and this one kind of feels like kind of him, him doing a lark, him doing something a little different before, um, because after this, he did his remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much and The Wrong Man and Vertigo, um, uh, which were all a little bit more, more serious, kind of more what you think of when you think of Hitchcock. 
Uh, so yeah, this was like him. He's like his like. Oh, I'm gonna have fun on this one. I mean, not that he doesn't have fun on his others, but this one is just like it's a goof. I, I and Joel, you're you're gonna have a reaction to this. When mm. The Arnie character made me think of Fulci Bob, except I didn't want to rip his throat out. That's nice. That's good. See, yeah, like I know you have strong memories of Bob, but I it obviously affected you. I think we need to talk about this. Uh, tell <laughs> tell me about your mother. No. <laughs> I don't. I, nobody likes Fulci Bob. That kid is so fucking annoying. <laughs> No impact. Like Manhattan Baby, I only think of the the little girl. I I wish I could, but I I, I saw I think House by Cemetery is the Bob one. I can't remember. It's like I know when I started off I'm like God damn it, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So, uh, what did you guys think of? Uh, the the part when the millionaire says like I'll give you anything for these paintings and uh, the reaction of John Forsyth. I mean, uh, oh sorry, you go. No, no, you go, please. I was just say it. I don't know. It's it's a stupid plot twist that I kind of love in how stupid it is, in that it just kind of. Everything is just kind of silly and not too serious. And this could be, you know, a, a, a big moment for them. And it just kind of plays with the same kind of like, oh, hey, look, you know, we stumbled on a dead body. Oh, hey, we stumbled on a millionaire. Um, I kind of just like the, the, the silly simplicity of it. Um, the way it kind of, and it, you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. They kind of see it throughout the movie. You see the millionaire early on. Sorry, I'm losing my voice a little. Um, I mean, cough. Yeah, I like how it, uh, you know, you see the millionaire you know, a little bit earlier in the movie, you know, he's around. Um, and it's obvious, it, it's it's too easy for like, oh, hey, everything's solved by this guy just showing up. But it's cute. It fits the tone of the rest of the movie. It doesn't, you know, it, it, it's very indicative of how the movie doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, and it's also sweet. I like all the all the different characters getting their their uh, their, their, their little treats. Um, I love the reveal that comes at the end of the movie as to what um, Forsyth asked for, which is you know for the time a little risque. He asks for that double bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I like it. This this movie's just subtly horny all over the place. It's. <laughs> I mean, there's a part with um, the captain and. Uh, the ancient forty-two-year-old, mm. where she's like has like the 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 cup, like the mug thing, and he she's like, Can you put your finger through the handle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like yep. Jesus Christ, what am I watching? <laughs> it's very important. Yeah, I I did not. I was this, I was suddenly like um clutching my pearls a couple parts. Like this was hornier than than I thought it would get. <laughs> I think that the. Uh, in a way, the millionaire, you know, scene where everybody's asking for something is kind of like, oh, come on, man. This guy was ready to pay you like tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds. It's like he really likes your art. But also, they live in this tiny town in the middle of nowhere. They would have to go somewhere, you know, to buy these things if he did ask for money. 
it, it's it's kind of this like interesting like well I got a delivery man for the stuff of dreams for us so yeah and uh, I guess like going back to the Arnie kid character he kind of feels like um, another Ozu connection the little boy from uh, Good Morning. Like a variation of like that. Type oh yeah, of kid. Mm-hmm. I love you. Good. Yes. Yes, it's for not, sure. He's not as charming as the I love you kid. It's he's kind of adorably precocious. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jessica, have you seen Good Morning, the Ozu movie? That's the one with the yeah yeah I've seen that one. That one's really silly. That that's a that's his <laughs> silly one. Fart jokes left <laughs> yeah, and right. Kid who's eating stones, right? <laughs> uh, pumice stones, I think. Yeah, my gosh. Yeah. <clears throat> Alright, so, uh, what else? Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't have much else, really, besides, like, I was just very pleasantly surprised. I know, you know, it's not the deepest one, it's not the most classic one, but it's just, it's so... It's so it's so much fun, and there's like like a random makeover at, at <laughs> on points. Like, why is this here? I don't know. It's 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 charming. Who cares? <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, uh, I wonder like if 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 this is like a beloved one or not, because like half the, I feel like half the time, whenever there's like the weird goofy one in a filmography of someone, it's the one people don't tend to. Certain fans tend to not like. Yeah, I'm sure there's fans who don't like this one, but I would say generally people have. It, it, it it's hard to. It's hard to hate the charm of it, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think that goes a long way for a lot of people. And you know, it's a goofy one, but like I said earlier, it's it's recognizably Hitchcock still. Um, it's just Hitchcock playing in a slightly different mode than what we're used to. And, uh, it, yeah, so these are Hitchcock movies. They're available everywhere, pretty much. Except for, I think only a couple silent ones are gone forever, presumably. But besides mm-hmm. those, you can pretty much find everything. Uh, yeah, so uh, I will... Oh yeah, so recommendations. Uh, Jessica, you can go first. <laughs> well, as I said, I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, go first. No, okay. oh. I, uh, I I I had forgotten to put one together for this. Um, I mean, I can recommend something off uh, the top of my head real quick. Um, yeah, go for it. Does it have to be something that's related to this year or the movie or, or anything like that? Or um, no, go, I mean, normally you go for the year, but I think it's fine. It, you know it's, what? Actually, if we're gonna, I'll I'll do tone. I will do tone since we did a silly one. Um, and before we started the show, I had been mentioning to you, Spencer, the mm-hmm. um, um, that the great Keith Giffen, um, one I think one of the great comic artists, comic writers of the last forty-ish years, um, passed away recently. And uh, I've been rereading his uh, work on uh, Justice League International, where. He took what was a pretty serious superhero team comic book and turned it into um, a very silly, goofy farce. Um, so yeah, uh, you know it doesn't really match the year, but 
uh, it's taking something and kind of uh, subverting it into being silly and not take itself too seriously in kind of a way that reminds me of Trouble with Harry. So uh, that's my um, that's that that's my recommendation. Uh, uh, Justice League International by Keith Giffen. <laughs> All right. I haven't made a good read more comics, but money and space is the issue. So I'm kind of like. I hope the library has has these things because otherwise, uh, there's been I'm some cheap. good digital options. I, I always I always consider that, but I gotta wait until I have free time again mm-hmm. when the semester's over to actually do that. Right now, I'm just reading Hawkgirl, the miniseries, and Moon Knight, the and I had to drop like a couple other ones because every step my like I can't spend this much per month on this. This is. I only read old stuff now. I don't like a lot of modern comics. Most of what I read is stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Some I've been reading a lot of like romance comics from the uh, 50s by Jack Kirby that I like a lot. Mm. Oh, um, I, okay. Uh, since we're talking about comics, um, Patrick Horvath. Horvath? What's his name? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I know him through Twitter. Uh, he has a comic through who is that thing? I because uh, 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 he he's directed a couple movies and he's an artist. What is it? It's called Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees. I just and heard about that. Yeah, I don't even know. Yes, I I I know Patrick through uh through Twitter, but he has I think it's IDW or Image. I can't remember which one. That ju- the first issue just came out as of this week, I believe. It's IDW. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like a cutesy animal-looking thing, but not actually cutesy because it's about like a serial killer, I think. Looks like it. It looks really cool. Yeah. And um, he had, he made a movie, I think, uh, I forgot when it came out, but it's called Entrance. I think the title, how you pronounce it, but it's basically what if a slasher but done in the style of like a Jardin Brothers movie <laughs> and it's really good and intense and it's like uh, one of the few like slashers I actually feel anything about because it's, it's not just standard approach it's like really fascinating to see it from a different perspective and uh, I highly recommend uh, basically it, uh, Patrick Horvath art his comic his movies he does a uh, cool artist. Okay, so anyway, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Jessica, was that 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 only thing? Yeah, you know, that's kind of what I came up with on the top of my head. And like I said, he Keith Giffen passed recently. I think he's probably, in my opinion, one of the most influential comic book creators of the last half century. Um, uh, though he's maybe not as much of a household name as as, as some others, you can feel his. I mean, like we were talking, uh, uh, the the Reyes Blue Beetle that that you like a bit. Mm-hmm. I think you've even mentioned yeah. him before. Um, My favorite Blue know, Beetle. Yeah, he co-created that character, or um, did amazing work on like uh, he created Lobo, um, who's kind yep. of a silly, fun character, um, kind of a a play off like the uh, the gritty, tough guys of the late '80s, early '90s. Um, yeah, he's just one of the best. Great artist, great writer, um, and uh, I think people would really enjoy his Justice League if they read it. Okay, okay. 
right, so for me, stuff is I'll start 1955, Journey to the Beginning of Time, Carol Zimmon. And Carol Zimmon, he did these very, uh, I gotta find the famous one. He did um, Fabulous, the Fabulous Baron Munchausen, the 60s one. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen that movie, this is, this is an earlier one, Journey to the Beginning of Time, where these boys go on an adventure and they're dinosaurs. And it has mm-hmm. his like very charming, like distinct art style and sensibility attached to it. It's notably not as good as later stuff, but it still is very, very fun, and I like his his movies a lot in general. Okay, other fifty-five one, a forever a woman. I have not seen this one. I've been looking for it for a while. It's a Kinoyu Tanaka movie. She was the second Japanese woman to direct films, feature films ever, and she's also a she worked. She was a big uh, actress. She worked with Musoguchi for decades. She was in the early Ozu silent films. She is in some Kurosawa movies, and she acted like from the twenties to the I think eighties, because she died in the eighties, I believe. But uh, a very influential uh, person, and sh- her movies aren't that available. But if you can if you can find them, I checked them out because she's a very important and this uh, fascinating figure from Japanese cinema. Okay, 38. I just have... Um, okay, but first one is Swing by Oscar Micho. Uh If you've seen Oscar Micho movies, then you kind of know what to expect. It's, um, it, it's a race film from the time period. So it's the budget compared to Hollywood stuff is a lot lower it's a lot cheaper looking but don't let that um distract uh, d- um not make you not want to watch it but because uh, Micho is a the one of the first big the, the first big black filmmaker in america and um a lot of stuff is on youtube in full and meh quality but that's kind of what you get stuck with with the, with the black movies from the 20s and 30s and my other one is is a Dave Fleischer short, A Date to Skate. It's a Popeye one, and it's roller skating. And if you like Dave Fleischer cartoons and Popeye, then you will definitely enjoy it. Uh, Dave Fleischer it might be my favorite animator of all time, or at least one of them. And uh, yeah, I, I love his... I like I, I like strippier stuff, but like I do genuinely love his Popeye cartoons also. That's it for me. I don't do, do I even like movies? Do I even watch movies? <laughs> this is a question, real question for everybody. Okay, so fifty-five we've done a couple of times, yeah, and the, the course of, of uh, yep, we've got uh, the uh, I live in fear. Samurai 2, this might be one I watched on my own, Samurai 2 Duel at the Ichi Kozu Temple, which yeah. is the sequel to the... Uh, Samurai 1. Sa- yeah, Samurai 1, but it's... The, what was the character's name? is um, uh, Miyamoto, Mu- Miyamoto Musashi. Miyamoto think, Musashi, the I most famous swordsman in Japan, I guess. 
You have a 40-year-old playing a 15-year-old. Well, I mean, if anyone could do it, it's... Uh... <laughs> Toshiro. Yep. Toshiro Mofune. I mean, uh, yeah. And not we to, did. Not, not to be a, a dork about, but historically, Mushashi would have been 15 at the time that the first movie took place. Yeah. But, okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> got, got the joy of a 15-year-old. And we did Princess Yang Kuei Fei, which was, I remember it looking very nice. I don't remember much about the movie, though. I just remember Run Run Shaw was the producer on it. Oh my gosh, we also did Le Point Cour. <laughs> Agnes Varda movie, one of my, like, favorites. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if I can put it in a top whatever, but it's it's one that I always, like... Like, when I think about that movie, I have some very, very strong memories of just, like, being blown away for the first time. Intermixing uh, neorealism, you know, non-actors interacting daily life with documentary footage. And then these two actors who are doing, they seem like they're, they're in their own world, surrounded by what's actually happening giving off these poetic lines that are beautiful staring not necessarily each other they're like lying in directions figuring out whether or not their relationship can continue or not um it's it's really good and we talked about it on the podcast but i'm gonna re-recommend it right now and that's that's it like i've seen other things from this movie but they're all very very famous Okay. So, 35, or uh, 39, rather. 38. 38, 37, 32. 38. Okay, 38. The year my grandma was born. Your grandmother was born. I remember that day, clearly. Um, (laughs) Actually, uh, there was a movie called uh, Holiday with uh, Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant. And it's... I remember <laughs> kind of being irritated with the movie because it's got this poster that shows like people water skiing and uh, people riding horses. It's like, no, it takes place in one house. And it, it's a really entertaining movie. Like you can see Cary Grant trying to figure out if he's the the person that we know later in like Hitchcock movies that's got his way of speaking and all this stuff like that. But uh, not quite there yet. He's he's doing this like tumbling scene, physical comedy, along with Catherine Hepburn. It, it's so entertaining. But the story itself is um, Catherine Hepburn comes from a super rich family, and her sister is actually uh, trying to be engaged to Cary Grant's character, who is not a rich person. And it's kind of scandalous. The father is not really interested in acknowledging this as something that is okay with him and. When they finally get to the point where it's like, okay, we we agree, you can be married, all this stuff, we're going to announce it on New Year's Eve. There's a complication, which is Catherine Hepburn plays one of those not like the other girl girls, and it's just like you fall in love with her character, like I fell in love with her character, just watching it, and there's so much life and nothing about like. We have to stay rich, so you're going to get this job with Daddy, and we're going to bump up, and we're going to have a house, everything all planned out. Um, I've had recent experience with that in my personal life, and uh, not not good, not good. But I do really recommend Holiday. It's directed by George Cukor. 
and you know he's got a huge library so of things that a lot of people have heard about i'm surprised i had a 38 film at all that i haven't mentioned before yeah kook were the other openly gay director at the time in hollywood there you go he and james whale maybe there are others but those are the only two i know of we talked about the women right yes we did yeah we directed that your favorite adam's rib Yep, I like the movie a lot, but I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I'm a sucker for the Hepburn, um, Tracy movies. Yeah, even the not great ones like the the computer one, which is objectively kind of bad, but I still really enjoy it. I uh, just saw um, on on thirty five millimeter get this at. Uh, down the street from me, there's this place called the Museum of the Moving Image, and they mm-hmm. showed Sylvia Scarlet, which is another uh, Hepburn and Grant movie directed by uh, George Cooper. It's not always great, but it's really fun. She cross-dresses for most of the movie. She's very charming as a, as a guy. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of that one, but that sounds interesting. It was very controversial because of like the stuff it does with gender in the movie. I mean, this was it after Marlene Dietrich wore her tuxedo in that one movie. I'm trying to remember. This was 1935. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that was after Dietrich did the tuxedo thing and like scandalized people. It's like, oh, she's still hot in a tuxedo. Like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> it's Marlene Dietrich. Uh, but in this movie, she's like playing as a, she's playing she's playing a woman pretending to be a guy through oh. most of the film. Hmm. So it's a Mulan situation. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, uh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Anyway, so uh, what do? Okay, so that is it. I got stuff to do pretty soon. So first off, Jessica, do you have stuff that you want to promote? No, <laughs> okay. uh, been just kind of working on my own projects lately. Nothing, nothing coming out soon. But uh, thank you for asking. Okay, and uh, you will be back for um, another Hitchcock episode talking about y- Young and Innocent, the blackface one, uh, and Vertigo. No blackface in that one, as far as I know. <laughs> I don't remember any blackface in it. <laughs> I think one of the. Uh... One of the Redwoods is in blackface in one scene. <laughs> uh, and um, there's some... Oh, what was that? The Klaus Kinski Western you mentioned. The, the fucked up, depressing one. Oh, the uh, the Great Silence? Yes. I've been thinking about that. doing that one. Because after hearing you and a bunch of other people talk about it, it's like, okay, I, I probably should cover that one. One of my favorite movies ever. Big Corbucci fan. He's probably my favorite. Not probably. He is my favorite spaghetti western director. He's fantastic. Yeah. Since this season is all about pushing myself to watch stuff I usually don't like, I want to do another spaghetti western episode, and hopefully, I uh, I like it like spaghetti westerns. But uh, uh, I think he's a good. I don't know if you've ever seen any other Corbucci, but I think he's a good um, good one to go with. I've seen Django and I don't. I like the first half. And this is very different half. from Django. I like it a lot more than Django. Um, hey, Spencer. Yeah. 
he directed Super Fuzz with Terrence Hill. Oh, He's a super trooper. <laughs> the HBO classic. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, yeah, uh, I'll I'll talk to you when we get closer to uh, third forum. Great Silence and uh, the Hitchcock uh, episode two or three because there's a third one planned that, that someone else picked some ones that. Ooh, got. which ones? It they are man who knew too much. The 30s one and uh, Sabotage. Good movies. And uh, also, I looked up the runtime, they're like apparently about 70, 80 minutes long. It's like, oh, perfect. His, his British movies are short usually. Yeah. yeah I, I, I limited free time and I saw the runtime. Like, yeah, I, I, won't, I won't cover those ones. That's good. <laughs> All right. So, um,. For me, I write for Grumpire. You can read my stuff on there. There's a bunch of stuff that I've uh, contributed to or have written by myself. And uh, I'm on podcasts on occasion, like Movies from Hell uh, and other stuff like that. And Jay Diesel, he you got stuff. No, but uh, this is uh, no one listens to the end of the episodes, I assume, but. I just want to. Uh, I just want to mention again that if you f- you feel sad, you feel like there's nothing out there. Please reach out to friends and loved ones. I'm sorry, this just came back because I mentioned Super Super Trooper, which my brother loved. Uh, I don't know if he loved it, but he liked it. <laughs> you want to cut this out or keep it? No, I want to keep this. Okay, that's one picture. Suicide in crisis line in the u.s just dial 988 and there's always somebody available to talk to you but i don't yeah no projects right now <laughs> okay and that is 988 is the number yep yep that's right okay just want to re- re-emphasize that and uh let's see so yeah the, no idea when this is coming out but Jessica, thank you for your time and uh uh, see you guys next time for whatever it is that comes after this. Thanks for having me. Uh, see you guys. music is by James Fell. Our logo is by Andrew Bargeron. You can find him as Jemetsko on Threadless, TeePublic, Redbubble, Shirt Woot Catalog, and T-Theory. That is spelled G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. You can find our show in previous seasons on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and other places where you can find podcasts.